Ja, dat zijn uh, no more questions. Nee, Johanna. Johanna, ja, dat kan te zeggen. It's Friday, May 20th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I am Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Depth versus Heart Correspondent. And with me today is uh, Gordon Derek, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and uh, Zelensky Doppelganger <laughs> uh, and Eurovision Keelhauler. Uh, yeah, Gordon, I'm watching you right now on uh, on our Zoom call or Skype call, yeah. and you are dressed as uh, Vladimir Zelensky, <laughs> and uh, you're even uh, you're even just as uh, well covered as as he is. Uh, I'm, I'm probably better covered than he is. He's usually in his yeah. in his office uh, with the with the flag behind him, whereas I'm actually yeah. under, I'm actually literally undercover. So <laughs> the, the, the Russians are never going to find me. Um, Covered by a uh, soundproof blanket. Um, I'm anticipating uh, Vladimir Putin's arrival in The Hague uh, by, <laughs> by going undercover. So. Very good. Yeah. Uh, and you're also a Eurovision keelhauler. Um, uh, oh, yes. yes. This, this was to do with the, uh, the outrageous decision by the Dutch jury to give 12 points at Eurovision to Greece, which I thought was by far and away the worst song in the entire... To Greece? Yeah, to Greece. Yeah, you've probably forgotten it because it's Eurovision. Yeah. So as soon as you've heard the song, you forget it. You erase it from your mind, like Mark Ritter's text messages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, ca- I have no recollection whatsoever. I have no active recollection whatsoever uh, about Greece. But I'm sure Mark Rutte has uh, personally paid for the entire performance. Yes. Uh, even though he had promised never to send any more money to Greece. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, all I can remember is it was called Die Together and it was about, it, it sounded like um, a sort of rejected submission for the theme tune to a sequel to Titanic. It was that kind of thing. <laughs> it was something about, you know, to, 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 yeah, I think yeah, the, the, the theme of it was um, people not growing old together but dying young, or, or growing old together and dying together or something really tacky and cheesy like that but it was awful it was a dirge and the dutch jury because uh, they um this is where my beef about the top trade doesn't comes in is the top top trade doesn't just encourages people to listen to the same terrible old songs again and again and again eventually your your entire musical taste is sort of hollowed out from within and then you and then you do things like this it's a it, it's a horribly <laughs> corrosive phenomenon okay well um I'm sure we will send a uh, uh, no 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 the, the the Dutch jury has to be keelhauled. Yes. Uh, not the Greek uh, performance. Not the Greek performer. No, the Dutch jury. Oh, no, no. And, the, and not the Dutch voters either. I think the Dutch voters, like everybody else around Europe, uh, voted for Ukraine. So yeah. And it was the fir- one of the one of the few occasions that uh, the United Kingdom had a real chance of winning, right? Yeah. Uh, if Unfortunately, think- they chose uh, a year when uh, Russia <laughs> needed to invade a foreign country. Yeah, but the, yeah, they, they become is, uh, yet another victim of uh, Putin's invasion. <laughs> was was uh, the British Eurovision uh, entry, which was, was which was actually pretty good, and also just disproved my personal theory, which is that Britain will never win any points at Eurovision ever again because of Brexit. But actually, everyone was really. Taken by the song and it got loads of votes, so that was nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. I think the Brexit Sunday uplands are finally being glimpsed. Um, yes, yeah. In uh, uh, where was Eurovision this year again? Uh, uh, Italy, Turin. Italy, Turin. Turin. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 The Sunday yeah. uplands yeah. of Brexit are in are in Turin. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and that uh, brings us to my uh, job title, yeah. Depth versus Heart. Uh, that yeah, awful celebrity case, which <laughs> everyone seems to have been talking about uh, over the past month or so. Mm. Uh, but what was really surprising was that... Um, the Netherlands was submitted as a piece of evidence in this court case. The whole country? Uh, well, not necessarily, <laughs> but there was a Dutch link. Right. Um, Amber Hart apparently uh, was on one of these awful talk shows that we have in the Netherlands, uh, RTL Late Night. Yeah. Uh, remember when it was taken over by Twan House? Oh, yes, um, briefly. Yeah, it was briefly, a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. It was a disaster. Uh, nobody watched it. Uh, it had to be cancelled because of low ratings, so it's kind of surprising that uh, the Johnny Depp legal team um, managed to uh, to retrieve it because I'm sure nobody has watched it in the Netherlands. Um, it, Amber Hart was on the show and she explained that she um, had donated all the money she got after divorcing Johnny Depp to two charities. Mm. Um, but in the court case, she had to. They played the clip where she was uh, on that talk show and where she where she uh, where she claimed she did that. Yeah. But she had to. Uh, confess on the oath in the court uh, room that uh, that she never actually did that. Um, so um, yeah, that yeah. Of course, the, the uh, Johnny Depp's legal team's uh, strategy is is portraying Amber Hart as a liar. Mm. Uh, so this uh, this uh, contributed probably to that image as well. But yeah, it was really strange to see Twan House uh, in this very famous um, yeah f- uh, wildly watched uh, court case. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, they uh, announced it as uh, a Danish talk show. Um, that <laughs> seems a, to be yeah. Yeah, that, 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 a running yeah. problem with the Netherlands yeah. to be a, uh, called Denmark. It, it's an uh, Demic uh, mistake that Americans make, mixing up the Dutch and the Danish constantly. Which newspaper was it that called uh, Mark Rutter the Danish Prime Minister? That's definitely happened. That was the New York that Times. That was the New York Times, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They also, they also uh, linked to one of my tweets talk, discussing his, his SAP. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the, the journalistic qualities of the New York Times are really... Um, yeah, uh, if if you if you use me as a source, that uh, that's, uh, that says a lot about <laughs> yeah, your journalism. Yeah, that says qualities, how desperate they become. Yeah, how yeah, threadbare so, their uh, research is. Yeah, so um, yeah, it was uh, that, that that was it was kind of strange uh, to see uh, Twan House pop up like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, because in a courtroom uh, in Virginia. Yeah, uh, yeah, but 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 um, yeah, but, but uh, Depp versus Heard isn't the case everyone's talking about now, of course, because it's been upstaged by the Wagatha Christie case. Have you been following this at all? <laughs> Not at all. This, this is two footballers' wives in, in, involved in like a libel um, oh. you know, fight. Uh, yeah, yeah. Over one of them basically accused the other of leaking stories to the newspapers and in, in, in uh, and uh, engaged some uh, quite uh, actually quite clever trickery on Instagram by basically just sort of um, blocking everyone on Instagram except this person, except this one other footballer's wife, and then putting a story up. Uh, on Instagram, so knowing that uh, uh, that her rival was the only one who could actually see it, and sure enough, it turned up in one of the tabloids, and therefore she said case closed. And uh, at that point, uh, the other uh, the, the footballer's wife uh, then sued her for libel for calling her a liar, and it's uh, it, it's going through the courts, and it's just fascinating, just uh, in a gruesome kind of way to see. I think despicable people suing each other in the English courts is just the highest <laughs> form of farce. It's uh, it's just captivating. Well, it, it already consumes much of my time <laughs> ignoring the Depp versus Hart case, so I can't uh, be bothered uh, uh, <laughs> doing that with this case as well. Also, it, it takes uh, hours deleting all my text messages from my phone exactly, uh, yeah, every yeah, day, so yeah, yeah it's, uh, I really do not have the time. Yeah, I think it's time to upgrade your phone to, to my <laughs> uh, yeah. 
or, or, or hire somebody to delete the two tweets for you. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's probably a better solution. <laughs> and that brings us to the uh, op of the week, and this time it comes from uh, from Delft, uh, my uh, my very own uh, 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 place of residence, where on Monday. Yeah. Where on Monday morning a busy tunnel in the, on the A4 motorway connecting Rotterdam and The Hague was closed due to a shortage of staff. Rijkswaterstaat, that's the uh, yeah, overall infrastructure department of the Netherlands, they're responsible of motorways, of canals, of bridges, of basically everything uh, you can imagine. Uh, they said in a statement that the Ketel tunnel had to be uh, shut because two people had called in sick and that meant that there was nobody available to monitor traffic mm. in the tunnel during the morning rush hour. Traffic was diverted to the nearby A15 motorway, which caused chaos on the roads around Rotterdam and The Hague. At 9 a.m., the tunnel could be reopened again because of other because other tunnel operators came into work early, but that was too late for thousands of people that was were already stuck in traffic. Uh-huh. Um, Molly's favorite MP, Daniel Koerhaus, uh, which uh, she had a, a very extensive rant about when she was on the show two uh, weeks I, ago. I, I listened and I was enthralled, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's really not uh, not a fan of him. Koerhaus um, uh, immediately uh, tweeted he had demanded an explanation from the infrastructure ministry, which told him that uh, this was a one-time incident and they don't expect the tunnel to be closed again for similar reasons uh, in the near future. But experts say that the closure is yeah very exemplary for the overall shortage of employees. Uh, earlier this year, for example, the NS was also forced to run fewer trains because there weren't enough conductors available. And uh, remember the chaos at Schiphol um, that was also um, yeah. uh, caused by a lack of, uh, of personnel. So it is a problem that we see everywhere in the Netherlands. But you know, if, if um, also a such an important government agency as Rijkswaterstaat has, has traffic shortage that yeah, really has um, uh, effects for, for everyone yeah. on the roads. And because it, it really is, was a chaos. Yeah, it is really dramatic, obviously, in, in such a uh, tightly popped... In, it really is dramatic in such a densely populated country as the Netherlands. If, if you close one road tunnel, it does uh, have a massive knock-on effect. Uh, I want to know, though, did, did Daniel Kurhaus uh, propose uh, solving the problem by starting up more flights from Delta? To, 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 to the Hague to, to, to bypass the tunnel or to skip all uh, th- yeah. th- that sounds like one of his uh, one of uh, that sounds like a, a solution that he uh, could ca- come up with I mean we have a, a an airport really nearby at rather than the Hague yeah. airport um, so yeah we, we could have used that um, but uh, yeah it's um, it, I mean the the cable tunnel was opened I think only four or five years ago so yeah. I I'm wondering how on earth did anyone get on time at work before that? Yeah. Um, well, there's two motorways between the Hague and Delft and uh, no, the, the Hague and Rotterdam. So I guess uh, the, the Ketel Tunnel takes uh, traffic through one of them. And the idea was it was to relieve the other one. So yeah, everyone had to, go right. the, had, to, had to go via the A13 instead of the A4 for people who know that that's part right. of the country. Um, yeah. But also I thought it was interesting, what was lovely to see was that NOS uh, did what news organizations do these days, of course, which is send a reporter straight to the scene. <laughs> uh, but by the time he got yeah. there, the tunnel had reopened. So he had to stand on a bridge and say the traffic was flowing, report the traffic was flowing normally again. That's, of course, because the NOS starts working at 8 a.m. Yeah. And uh, before someone, a journalist from Hilversum, could travel to uh, to The Hague, yeah, that's, uh, it was already 9 a.m. and the tunnel was reopened yeah. again. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's uh, everything we yeah, need to That's everything we need to say about the Cadle Tunnel. Yeah, so I took up the Cadle Tunnel this week. <laughs> yeah.
This week, Mark Rutte came under fire for deleting text from his very old phone. Health Minister Ernst Kuipers can't be bothered preparing for a possible new wave of coronavirus. Housing Minister Hugo de Jonge decided how we have to heat our homes. Economic growth halted and a pigeon turns out to have better memory than Mark Rutte's Nokia phone. Yeah. So at least uh, when the economy collapses and there's no staff to, um, uh, to direct the traffic, we can just all uh, go back to uh, carrier pigeon messages again. That's right. It will take us 15 years, but uh, yeah. The Volkskrant revealed on Wednesday that Prime Minister Mark Rutte has been deciding for years which of the text messages he sent or received were officially archived and which weren't. The revelation came after the newspaper noticed an important text was missing in official documents and communications released under a Freedom of Information Act request. The text, sent by Rutte to Amsterdam Mayor Femke Halsema in June 2020 during a protest at Dam Square in the capital, which attracted thousands of people during the first lockdown, was included in documents from the Amsterdam municipality, but was missing from the Prime Minister's office official documents. Suspecting Rutte didn't disclose all relevant information, the Volkskrant went to court, demanding everything to be handed over and it was during this case the government's lawyer explained how Rutte's text messages are stored. Apparently every time the prime minister receives a text he forwards it and its response to an aide or advisor. That way the communications are recorded but texts he sees as irrelevant are immediately deleted without being uh, archived. Texts that are too long to forward are read out loud over the phone either in its entirety or paraphrased. And the reason for this practice which the lawyer called real-time archiving which was a very creative way of, <laughs> yeah. of phrasing it yeah, a creative way of describing deleting messages real-time <laughs> yeah. archiving yeah <laughs> um he explained that uh, yeah rutte famously uses a very old nokia phone that according to the lawyer again uh, but heavily doubted by tech journalists only have a very limited storing capacity and rutte meanwhile has bought a new phone which uh, he insists had nothing to do with the volkskrant article yeah, um, and Rutte did, I think, later amend his excuse and say it wasn't that it had a limited storage capacity, but that once it uh, he had more than 20 texts in the memory, it started to slow the phone down and he couldn't use yeah. it. But it might just be working slowly because it's a Nokia 301 and it's like <laughs> seven years old. I don't know. Yeah, we, we, we've had extensive analysis of which type of Nokia phone <laughs> Rutte used, and apparently it's a 301 indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the, the, the other thing we should say is that he has actually got a new phone now. He upgraded it last week, and that was because he went to the United States um, on a personal visit and discovered that his phone didn't work on the US networks anymore. So he yeah. felt like he was forced to, to, to upgrade his phone very begrudgingly. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. he was once... Uh, visiting the apple headquarters in california when uh, he accidentally pulled out his nokia phone and (laughs) the entire staff of apple was was in total shock it recoiled in horror probably um, yeah 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 they almost kicked him out that he was still using a nokia phone of yeah around 2005 i think (laughs) so there's an absolute storm of reaction i think this actually made the international media as well What, what, what were the highlights of the reactions Yeah, well, it was complete outrage in the media, on social media and in Parliament. Not only because, you know, this way of archiving seems very labor intensive and time consuming for someone as important as the prime minister, but mostly because it seemed also the root of many of his scandals. Uh, Over the 12 years as prime minister, Rutte had lost important communications or forgot about them on numerous occasions. Uh, For example, when the Unilever CEO informed him that the company would move to London, 
after which the controversial plans to scrap the dividend tax was dropped, or when he couldn't remember being informed about a bombing by Dutch fighter jets in the Iraqi village of Harija, which killed over 70 civilians. In all of these cases, either the, the communications were lost or he couldn't remember uh, being informed about that. And um, uh, yeah, people uh, seem to think that this is probably the root of it. His communications are, aren't stored properly. Mm. Um, GroenLinks leader Jesse Klaver, um, apart from making an absolute cringy TikTok video in response to the news, um, also demanded the government uh, uh, would contact mobile uh, providers to retrieve as many texts as possible. Uh, and he also requested a debate. Uh, fresh PvdA leader Archie Kuyke said the prime minister actions made him uncheckable. SP, SP leader Lilian Marijnissen said it's not up to Rutte to decide what is important and what isn't. While PVV leader Geert Wilders called Rutte a chageraar, uh, which uh, Google translated for me as a peddler. No, that's a word I've no... never heard before. Wilders does specialize in, uh, in dredging up these uh, very old antiquated Dutch words in the middle of uh, in the course of parliamentary debates. Yeah, that's right. A uh, uh, chagrin is someone that uh, an uh, an untrustworthy salesman, I think, mm. like a um, Marskramer. Is that a word? I don't know. Yeah, it um, could, uh, so, someone who travels around buying, uh, question, uh, selling questionable stuff. That's yeah, so like the likes of a double glazing salesman or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rutte uh, told journalists in an uh, impromptu press conference that he hadn't broken any rules or guidelines, and he insisted that he had only deleted irrelevant or imp unimportant text messages um, in uh, other WOP occasions like uh, the, the freedom of information request is we call it a WOP in mm -hmm. Dutch yeah. uh, not to be confused with uh, the it's foreign affairs minister uh, that's with a P yeah. but this WOP is with a B um, you, you often see that he responds in very short messages right yeah. super Explanation point, explanation point, uh, thank you, uh, mm. something like that. And he basically says, yeah, that's that's all the th things I sent. And yeah, yeah, I immediately delete that because, you know, it's it's not, not too important. Yeah, yeah, but we, we, know, but we know as well that uh, Ruta uh, uses SMS messaging a lot. It's kind of his preferred method of communication, right? There's, uh, yeah, that he's constantly yeah, on the, 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 yeah. If you want to get in touch with Ruta uh, as a journalist who working the Binnenhof say that the, 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 you send him an SMS message it's much more effective than, than calling him to get his attention yeah, yeah. Um, um, the, the problem here is of course that we have no way of knowing for sure if if it's only uh, unimportant messages he deleted right it's not recorded in any way we have no way of of checking this um, uh, the practice is also not very in line with the promise Rutte had made at the start of his fourth cabinet when he said that he was going to change the administrative culture and lead a cabinet that's more open and transparent. Yeah. Does that, um, uh, does deleting all your, or, or yeah, we don't know how many text messages he deleted, yeah. does that help with this new way of, of governing? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, and of course, it, it, it all um, has echoes, of course, of what was termed the Rutter Doctrine, which is all about uh, very light record keeping and holding meetings without taking any minutes, so there's no trace of what you've actually agreed or what you've discussed. Yeah, and that, and that was really, really yeah, um, strongly um, criticised and condemned by uh, the uh, uh, by the inquiry into the Tuslachen affair, which was what supposedly prompted this change of heart and this new administrative culture. So the fact that Rutte is still you know, doing things like deleting text messages suggests he hasn't really learned his lessons. Exactly, um, and just 
taking a look at what exactly the rules are. Yeah. Uh, official communications obviously need to be archived, uh, but it is only since 2019 when the Council of State uh, yeah, ruled that uh, text messages and WhatsApp messages uh, are also regarded as official communication. Um, but so they need to be stored as well, but only if they uh, relate to policy and decision-making uh, processes. Um, there was an official guideline made uh, after this ruling on how to deal with these kind of communications. And the guideline says that it's the responsibility of the civil servant himself to periodically upload relevant communications to the government's archive software. So in other words, the official needs to make a selection himself. So strictly speaking, if Rutte says that, uh, yeah, he, he, he does that, mm. then he didn't break any rules that's what he's supposed to do uh, the question here is of course do we trust him to make the right selections and not um, yeah cherry pick uh, what what has to be archived or not yeah do we trust him and also where, where, where's uh, you know the whole point of parliament and democracy in a sense is uh, that uh, MPs should be holding the government to account how can you hold the prime minister to account if he's making decisions on his own of what text to keep and what ones to delete there's no and that's kind of what really what the debate on Thursday all came down to wasn't it yeah uh, and and on whether we trust Mark Rutte or not uh, it was a pretty chaotic and sometimes emotional debate I, I was present there for for uh, quite some time um, uh, I, I thought well let's uh, uh, I, I wanted to go to the Tweede Kamer uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, for for a while now, and I saw that this debate was coming up, so I thought let's let's go, um, and yeah, it was really. Um, yeah, uh, emotional. Usually, when when Margaret is debating, uh, is having a debate, you know, uh, uh, the the opposition parties they take, uh, they criticize the, him heavily, but he always uh, nods at them when he when they when they approach the the the, the podium or when they leave. Uh, you know, there's always a friendly atmosphere outside the actual debating, but this time it was different. They were really, yeah, there was really a hostile. Um, atmosphere in the parliamentary mm. chamber, and you could really feel it from the from the from the public gallery. I have to admit. Yeah, and Rutte um, himself was really in competitive mode. I think other commentators picked up that he was unusually uh, emotional and passionate about it. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, to, to a degree that, that people said they hadn't seen seen before, which is uh, yeah, it's yeah, just he took it very personally. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> yeah, the opposition parties clearly do not trust Rutte. Um, they say because of his track record of scandals and incidents involving a failing memory, a lack of transparency, a willingness to disclose information, lost communications, you know, everything, every scandal that we have seen in the past 12 years, uh, they, they, they mentioned at some point. Rutte was called a liar, and yeah, that happens regularly, but but yeah, this time he really seemed offended by it, personally offended by it, by it and agitated that the entire opposition did didn't trust him and accused him of yeah throwing away important pieces of information in order to avoid taking responsibility he really yeah he was really personally uh, uh, offended by that you could really see that mm -hmm. and he complained that it has become too easy for politicians but also the media and also on social media to call him and other members of the cabinet liars uh, and that it prompted even more emotional reactions by opposition MPs, of course. And uh, during the, it was also 
Interesting that during the debate, the Volkskrant revealed even more information. They revealed that only 41 text messages by Mark Rutte were archived in the first half of 2020. So that was at the start of the corona pandemic. Uh, but Rutte explained that this is by this was because uh, you know dealing with uh, with the pandemic was wasn't done over text, but mostly in person or on the phone. So yeah, th- that's how he explained the very low number of 41 texts mm. uh, in that period of time. Um, and the debate also had to end quite abruptly at 4 p.m. because uh, Rutte was expected to uh, to receive the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. Um, but yeah, the debate wasn't over at all. I mean, it was still, uh, it really f- felt like they a lot of things weren't... Uh, uh, still need to be needed to be said, yeah, and they had uh, unfinished yeah, business. It was really unfinished yeah. business. Um, and Rutte, but Rutte did promise to look into ways to improve the current guidelines and investigate, for example, the Norwegian model, where uh, all the phones of all public officials are uh, read out every month, and uh, uh, all the communications are saved. Yeah, uh, and there's an independent of, official, right, who, who supervises this. So that, yeah, so, that it's, yeah. so that there's a third party involved to actually re- to check the messages and decides independently of the politicians what should be kept, which uh, which makes uh, which makes very sense, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, a motion of no confidence was tabled by Geert Wilders and it was rejected uh, because it wasn't supported by PvdA and GroenLinks, which is significant because the coalition is currently in negotiation with them over Senate support for the spring budget. Uh, but the other contestant, yeah, in the winter did support the motion. So, yeah, that might be um, uh, problematic for for that uh, uh, project as well. Um, but yeah, it's uh, what what do you think, uh, Gordon? Do we do do you trust Mark Rutte in in making the right decisions uh, regarding his text, or do you like the the opposition parties um, have no uh, trust anymore in, uh, well, in the prime minister? You know, I don't think it even comes down to that. I mean, I saw the debate, and a lot of it was uh, on the one hand you had um, uh, some the coalition parties and even some of the opposition parties like the SKP saying that this is all trivial and overblown and a load of nonsense. I think Rutte, he actually used that word. He, he called it onzin in the course of the debate. Um, yeah. And said that you know th- th- there's much more important things going on in the world, and this is you know why are we spending a whole day debating deleting text? But it it goes comes down to the fundamental point that the job of Parliament is to hold the government and the Prime Minister to account. And Ritter's defence was that um, you know he'd acted within the law, and he was you know, he was a trustworthy person, and he'd acted within the spirit of the law. But the problem was there was no way of test there was no way of checking that because we don't know what was in the messages because he deleted them before anybody else saw them, and that's a fundamental problem that there needs to be some kind of mechanism to make sure that because you know keeping records of um you know of public events or, or or decisions that you make in 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 the business of government is really really important there's going to be a public inquiry into coronavirus and yet mark rutter has only kept 41 text messages from a six-month period now he might say that he did have made all the crucial decisions in private meetings he may well have done the idea that this guy who's a prolific texter only sent 41 important messages in the course of a coronavirus pandemic is just laughable so it's uh, I think yeah. it's a fundamental problem, and, and and the rules are so kind of vaguely drafted that sure Rutter probably did act within the letter and possibly even the spirit of the rules, but you know the rules need to be much tighter and say quite clearly and categorically what information needs to be kept and who is in charge of deciding um, what is kept 
rather than just a prime minister on his own at late at night, just got scrolling through his messages from the in the course of the day and just deciding to keep or delete. And of course, one one thing that Rutter said when this first broke was said, "Oh, we'll we'll, we'll just uh, go to the phone provider and get them to re- to reclaim the messages." But of course, you know, um, anyone with a bit of technical knowledge knows that that's actually impossible. You know, once your yeah. phone, once your messages are deleted because they are SMS messages and not WhatsApp messages or whatever, once they're deleted from your phone, they're gone. They've disappeared. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, and um, um, and the other I mean, thing Ritter said was that I thought was really interesting strategically was that he tried to shift the the base of the debate from towards saying that you know, that um, because the opposition were attacking him on this that this was undermining trust in the whole of Dutch politics, right, in in, in the entire political culture. But it wasn't. This was the issue of trust in the prime minister, and also how do you check the prime minister is behaving responsibly in trustworthy fashion. Um, and, and what mechanisms are in place? And it's quite clear that those mechanisms are inadequate and need to be fixed. Yeah, what what he what he meant was that uh, a lot of uh, uh, opposition parties, a lot of uh, uh, politicians, um, when this news broke, uh, immediately called him a liar. That he yeah. w- immediately uh, held back information, even though you know, strictly speaking, uh, you can question the way uh, this is done. But you know, stri- we have no proof that he has deliberately deleted sensitive information there's no proof of that but mostly because we can't have any proof of that but uh, there are currently no signals that he has done that so that was what he meant when he said you know don't call me a liar when you don't know if i haven't have or haven't lied and uh, i think he has a point there if we want a new administrative culture and then this is also uh, uh, then, then this is also important that we have a um, a, a healthy level of distrust. Mm. I mean, right? Politicians and journalists, we have to check the the, the people who, who who hold the power. But there is also it, it seems that there is also in currently a, a toxic level of distrust that immediately you have your verdict ready uh, and immediately call him a liar and immediately announce a motion of no confidence. Mm. Um, I mean, we, we, that's a practice that we have seen uh, done by Geert Wilders on many occasions, of course. But, you know, gradually we see that uh, this, these motions of no confidence, uh, they get supported by... Uh, increasingly more opposition parties, um, even though, yeah, it's not, ex- it, it's not, it doesn't pass. So there's no, and we know that it's not going to mm. pass. So it's no, there's no real reason to to table it. Yeah, the, I the, think the, that is also. The, I think he has a point, but yeah, it's it's a bit. Um, um, uh, um, he, he shouldn't have raised it right now, <laughs> when he is clearly in the wrong of 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 of. Uh, 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 deleting text messages, um, especially if we have an example ready, um, the, the Femke Halsma text, mm. he says this is not part of a decision-making process, but you know, uh, the text said, I'm, I'm not going to intervene in any of this. You, you have contact with another minister, yeah. deal with him. I'm not going to per- get personally involved in this. Yeah, that's also a decision. But he said, yeah, this is not... Uh, uh, um, um, 
yeah, he he said this is not part of the decision making process. I deleted it because because of that. But you know, not getting involved is also a decision. So, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a decision that has well, it's a statement that has political consequences because yeah, it, it hands the uh, responsibility and the initiative back to Femke Halsmer, puts the ball in her court. So very definitely. So yeah, I, th- I, I get that to be, perhaps Gritter does have a point in uh, being uh, upset and offended that people are just going straight to calling him a liar on the basis of no evidence. But the fact there is no evidence is yeah itself that's the problem a, really you know th- there should the be evidence yeah. he shouldn't yeah. just be deleting the evidence he shouldn't be judge and jury in in in, in this and you know the, the, the same there's going to be a public inquiry at some stage into coronavirus so we should have this information available to the inquiry because it's going to have to it should be able otherwise it, it, it hampers its ability to to hampers its ability to analyze his decision making um and i also think that we're getting quite so fired up about it was a bit of a smokescreen because we learned this morning peter omsicht um uh, popped up um, the, 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 the tirelessly tenacious uh, now independent former Sadia MP and said that um he discovered that uh, actually in, in the uh, course of Tuslachen affair, one of the recommendations they made uh, in this report back in January last year, which was, of course, prompted the resignation of Rutter's cabinet, uh, the, the Van Damme Commission said that uh, all, the, all uh, de- government departments should come up with a plan f- f- to store and archive um, documents and information. And uh, they actually ordered, uh, or, 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 on the basis of that, the government said that uh, every, every department would come up with an information archiving plan by June last year, 2021. Mm. And when Omzicht pressed Ritter on this in the course of the debate, Ritter said, oh, I'll, 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 I'll get it to you by the end of 2022. 18 months yeah. later, right? And this is a Tuslachen affair yeah. where people were financially ruined for not for making tiny mistakes in their paperwork. And here's the Prime Minister on the other side of the scandal saying, oh, well, I'll just hand in my homework 18 months late. That would be unacceptable from, you know. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, yeah, you're right. The, and um, contrast is glaring, you know. The contrast is very glaring, and yeah, yeah, Mark Rutte is prime minister for twelve years now. He has a track record, and you can't. Uh, that's basically what he said, right? You have to see every incident uh, apart from each other. But there is a build-up of 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 incidents and uh, uh, um, a damage of trust, and yeah, eventually you end up with that. The, the, there's no avoiding. Uh, the, you can't avoid this. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. <coughs> so, so, so maybe the, maybe the opposition overplayed their hand by accusing him straight up of lying. But I think a lot of Inglaterra's indignation came down to the fact that he knew he was in the wrong here, and he had to create some kind of he had to deflect attention from that. And uh, and, and his, his strategy was to say, oh, we all need to work together. You know, we're all in this together. We all need to build, rebuild trust uh, <laughs> as, uh, as 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 a whole. So um, yeah, I'm not totally convinced. <coughs> no. Health experts have warned that the Netherlands could go back into lockdown in the autumn unless the government comes up with a coherent plan to deal with a new wave of coronavirus infections. Epidemiologist Fritz Rosendahl has called on the health minister Ant Kuipers to explain to the public now what will happen in the event of a new outbreak rather than waiting for infections to start rising and everyone to start panicking and then kind of making decisions on the fly. Is it is it me... Uh... Is it just me, or have I have never heard of epidemiologist Fritz Rosendahl? Is this a new name that that popped up, or have um, I just not been paying attention? I haven't encountered the past him in the course years. of the pandemic before. Perhaps I have. There's 
been he, he hasn't been one of the big names, you know. He hasn't been. No. Uh, yeah, he's not Marianne. Uh, uh, what's the f- Copeman? <laughs> <He's not, laughs> I'm forgetting. Mar- I'm forgetting it all. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Uh, um, Block them uh, from your memory. I've been doing some active archiving of the uh, of the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. Um, and I've yeah, the this, is, involved. this is just natural, yeah. natural psychological <laughs> behavior after yeah. experiencing a lot of traumatic. Uh, uh, yeah, experiences. So yeah, uh, yeah but, this is just natural. Yeah, but he's not Diedrich Commers or Marianne Kobmans who were popping up on talk shows uh, left, right, and centre. Uh, yeah. But nevertheless, he compared the situation in the Netherlands with uh, Denmark, where the government has drawn up a series of contingency plans, uh, saying what they wait, will do. Wait, in these countries scenarios. are the same. These two countries are the same. I think what so, are yeah. you talking yeah. about? They've How got can the same you compare? Prime Minister, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the experts are also concerned about the low take-up of booster vaccines, uh, the relatively low number of intensive care beds, and the fact that the health ministry has said it's not realistic to raise staffing levels in the health service in the next few years. Uh, Zander Coleman, uh, he, he has been quite prominent, Zander Coleman, a health economist at the University of Amsterdam, told a parliamentary briefing, it's as if the government is waiting until panic breaks out again to take action. Yeah, that seems like a... Um, uh repetition of uh, how they have dealt with uh, the pandemic uh, in the past two years. Um, So uh, what exactly was the health minister Ernst Kuyper's response? Uh, He said, uh, do it yourself, basically. He said it was up to everybody else to sort out the problem. Um, He said said schools and restaurant owners all needed to come up with their own plans to limit infections, uh, even though we sort of tried that at various stages of the pandemic. It didn't work. And in the end, the government had to intervene. Uh, he said all the government could do was monitor infections and organise another round of vaccines. Kind of curious because uh, it stopped monitoring infections. There's no testing. <laughs> they switched off the Corona Milder app. Um, and uh, the booster vaccines are progressing at roughly the same speed as the Russian army at the moment. <laughs> the good news is that right now, hospital cases Wait, are... Wait, are people getting unvaccinated? How does that work? <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, the vaccines are wearing off, right? So at some point, you're going oh, to need another right. booster. Yeah. So yeah, in, in a way, they are getting unvaccinated. In a way. Yeah. 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 yeah, right. Um, yeah, I mean, the positive news is that right now, hospital cases are at their lowest level for 18 months. There's fewer than 500 coronavirus patients in hospital, and there's only 26 people in intensive care with COVID-19, which sounds really good, but you've got to remember what happens when... Um, you get a new wave, which was that infections can double or treble in the, in the space of a month or two. Um, the, and the hospital figures lag behind infections. So when you see an uptick in the number of people in the hospital, you're already three weeks behind the curve, effectively. Um, and the last time we had 500 patients in hospital, which was September two, uh, 2020, um, the numbers started going up again. And within six weeks, we were back in lockdown. So um, what are the things the government can do uh, if there is a new outbreak? Well, one thing it can't do is just uh, bring back social distancing and mask mandates right away because um, uh, the coronavirus law, which uh, enabled them to do that, has just been abolished. Uh, the, the, the the law, um, because it was a, an emergency law, had to be extended every three months. Um, and this week, the Senate decided uh, um, uh, not to uh, extend the law. The coalition doesn't have doesn't have a majority, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, so the, and the two parties, Koenings and PFDA, who previously uh, supported the extensions, withdrew their support. Um, and that means that the coronavirus law, the whole framework for the um, pandemic response measures, will expire on June the first. And if ministers want to bring back things like you know face masks, social distancing, well, they can still rely on emergency powers or they can bring in new legislation all over again, but we know that takes uh, a long time. And Kaupas is also due to present plans to reform the public health laws so the government has more scope to respond to a pandemic. But those plans aren't due to be put before Parliament until September 
Um, and I think we've seen in uh, previous things like uh, trying to organize a coronavirus app that in practice it uh, you know, the, the, the first deadline is never the one they actually meet. So I guess we all just have to cross our fingers and hope the virus takes the summer off and that uh, we're not swept up by, in a whole wave of monkeypox or something else in the, in the meantime. <laughs> yeah, uh, monkeypox sounds uh, too much like an indoor play uh, paradise for children, <laughs> I think. Yeah, um, yeah, or, but or, yeah. Or, or like a 1990s computer game that Mark Rutter might play on his Nokia phone. <laughs> exactly, even though it doesn't have any memory for it, but yeah. that's, uh, that's okay. Um, there's also been calls to extend the compensation for people that are suffering from a long COVID, especially in healthcare and uh, in education, right? Yeah, this is the ongoing silent epidemic of long COVID, uh, which has particularly hit people in those sectors. Uh, trade unions want the government to set up a 150 million euro fund to help people who've been off work long term uh, as a result of contracting coronavirus. They argue the government didn't do enough to protect the health of frontline workers during the pandemic. Uh, you might uh, remember that right at the start of the pandemic, the government was actually actively encouraging people working in healthcare to go into hospital when they were infected because they were short of staff. Yeah, um, and uh, the union schools remained open. Schools remained which, open uh, exactly, yeah. and they weren't. They didn't organise any ventilation. They still haven't. That's another point that uh, was raised in the um, uh, by the experts this week. But anyway, um, the uh, yeah the trade unions say that uh, these people should be entitled to cash payments. Uh, they've had around six thousand responses since they set up a hotline several months ago to gauge the scale of the problem, uh, which includes around a thousand people who lost their jobs because they've been sick for more than two years. Uh, Kitty Yong, the deputy chair of the FNFA union, also said a legal case was being prepared and the union was ready to go to court if the compensation fund doesn't materialise. Hybrid heat pumps should become the standard replacement for gas-fired central heating systems from 2026, according to House Minister Hugo de Jonge. The minister said the deadline was intended to give suppliers, installation companies and property owners clarity about the new situation because the need to become more energy efficient is high and the speed must be increased. When I first heard that uh, Hugo de Jonge was talking about hybrid pumps, I I assumed that he bought some new shoes. (laughs) Or some ventilation uh, equipment for, uh, (laughs) finally, for for some hospitals. Yeah, I don't want to uh, have that mental image. uh, No, 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 definitely not. Households could also opt to switch to the municipal heating network if their local council has set one up, or install a fully electric heat pump if they have the right kind of installation. There will, of course, be an exception for property which is not suitable for heat pumps or district heating schemes. The youngest said in his briefings to... uh, MPs. Steps are also being taken to boost both the numbers of engineers and the production of heat pumps in the Netherlands. Heating system suppliers have warned in the past that there is a shortage of skilled workers to install the new systems. Is that because they've all been uh, rehired to, to man the, the tunnels by Vax <laughs> Yeah, or to uh, archive uh, all Margrethe's texts. <laughs> yeah. And how much is it all going to cost? Yeah, that's the that's the most important question here in the Netherlands, of course. Yeah, Dutch Homeowners Association Vereniging Eindige Huis says that the cost of installing a hybrid heat pump is currently up to around six thousand euros, which is around three times the price of a gas boiler. And that's the current standard, of course. But it could also be as much as 20,000 euros for a fully electric pump. 
The government is setting aside 150 million euros a year in subsidies to help homeowners pay for the change. And low-income households will also be able to borrow the money at a zero interest rate from a special fund. The maximum subsidy available will be up to 30% of the cost. Sector lobby group Technique Nederland estimates 2 million to 8 million homes in the Netherlands are currently suitable for hybrid systems. The Dutch government has pledged to ensure all homes in the country to be gas-free in 2050, aiming for 2,000 in the first two years and building up to 1.5 million homes by 2030. So, uh, yeah, a a lot of people not happy with these plans and, uh, yeah... Now, several opposition parties have criticized the plans, uh, especially Ja 21, uh, yeah, which is an important party because of uh, the spring budget uh, mm-hmm. negotiations we talked about uh, earlier in the podcast. And also Farmers Party uh, Burgerbeweging uh, have some issues. They say that the government wants to decide uh, what people install in their homes, but also uh, the PvdA is critical. They say that the move didn't take into account the high costs involved. Of course, heat pumps are the future, but a lot of people People simply cannot afford them, a Labour MP and former Greenpeace activist Joris Thijssen said. Energy specialists have also warned that there is a shortage of qualified personnel and insulation materials, but the demand for heat pumps have exploded and production have been uh, affected by severe lockdowns in uh, in China. So yeah, that's that's also a big problem. Yeah, because a lot of the parts, a lot of the components are made in China. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it is fully assembled, I think, in China as well. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's uh, also a problem. Yeah, as curious to hear Caroline from the plus objection to it on the basis that the government was telling people what to install in their homes and I thought that was kind of the basis of most planning law yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but yeah obviously it's, it is uh, you know the government has, has this very ambitious target to try and uh, switch off the whole gas supply and convert to renewable energy and uh, yeah I think we've seen already that it's going to be a, a very difficult process to get it done by this deadline of 2050 yeah exactly but part of the reason for this plan is of course to become less independent or less dependent from mm. from Russia yeah. um, and yeah many experts have said uh, in the past few years that it's going to take decades and decades to establish it but you know we have a war now and all of a sudden uh, the, the the level of urgency is even higher mm. and we've seen in several European countries that they have pledged to stop importing any natural gas or oil from Russia uh, entirely so yeah it does mean that we need to speed things up yeah. uh, also because uh, uh, a, lo- a lot of the a lot of the natural gas in the Netherlands comes from Groningen uh, which suffers from earthquakes of course due to these gas extractions we want to stop that as well so yeah we need to have a reduced gas house emissions so from all angles uh, there is a a high level of urgency in establishing this this transition yeah difficult decisions to be made and of course uh, Mark Rutte met Olaf Scholz the the German Chancellor this week and uh, one of the things they were discussing I think was whether to reopen the gas pipeline in Groningen right Uh, they're they're never going to pump out as much gas as they did at the height of um, uh, Dutch gas production because that's been a disaster and led to the earthquakes but they they might supply a small amount of gas in the next couple of years while Europe uh, tries to wean itself off uh, Russian gas supplies Yeah, uh, uh, Rutte, uh, Scholz, Ursula von der Leyen and someone else, they had a nice walk on the beach, Mm. one of the Danish beaches. Uh, The photos look (laughs) like the cover of a U2 album. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, but they had uh, had lots uh, lots to talk about. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's convenient that uh, they went for a walk on a Danish beach because it meant uh, Mark Rutte didn't have to leave his home country. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He could still text. 
If you've got any limbs left once you've paid an arm and a leg for a hybrid heat pump, why not donate them to the Dutch News Podcast? Or you could just give us a dollar or a euro or a pound a month by becoming a Patreon sponsor. All our sponsors get a shout out on the podcast and a chance to ask us a question, preferably by SMS message so we can archive it afterwards. <laughs> and most importantly, you earn our eternal gratitude for helping us to help you make sense of the obscure scandals, random op-pefs and Byzantine bureaucracy that is all part and parcel of living in the Netherlands. So this is the moment when we say thank you to all our regular patrons and to potential patrons. Uh, just do it. Hit the button. Don't wait for your pigeons to come home to roost, which is a story <laughs> we'll get on to shortly. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the Dutch News Podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Dutch News NL. Economic growth ground to a halt in the first quarter of 2022 as the war in Ukraine overshadowed the recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. The economy was also hit by the post-Christmas lockdown, which restricted trade in shops, bars and restaurants, as well as travel. The restrictions were gradually lifted through February, but then along came Vladimir Putin to put a spanner in the works. The statistics agency, CBS, said growth dropped to zero between January and March, household spending was down by 0.1%, and government spending contracted by 4%, and that was mainly because the coronavirus compensation schemes were being wound down. The war in Ukraine mainly affected exports, which shrank by 1.3%, but on a year-on-year basis the economy was actually much stronger uh, than in the first quarter of 2021, because back then we had an even stricter lockdown, a nationwide curfew, and bicycles on fire in Eindhoven. GDP was up by 7% compared to a year ago, and households spent 10% more on going out, clothes and home interiors. And there's also a different kind of problem on the jobs front. Yes, because we're currently in the very unusual position, in fact, I think the unique position of having more vacancies than people who can fill them. Uh, the CBS said employment's increased by 5% since 2019. There's currently more than 9 million people in work. Sounds like a good thing, but it means that, uh, for example, especially the catering sector is really struggling to find people to fill vacancies. And, of course, tunnels close because uh, yeah, there's no one uh, actually checking the screens. Chief economist Peter Hind van Mulliken said labour market participation has never been so high and many companies are struggling with staff shortages. He also said this is going to be a long-term problem because the population is, uh, is getting older and uh, a smaller proportion of the population is working. Some shops have restricted their opening hours or cancelled late-night shopping because they don't have enough personnel and companies are already starting to offer more incentives like cars and phones, not Nokia 301s, new, new smartphones, and accommodation, particularly for temporary or seasonal workers, or even a signing-on bonus to entice applicants. Um, I, I saw an advert the other week for people to deliver newspapers where they're being offered a thousand euros up front. So. Yeah. Yeah, that says a lot about uh, how desperate they are to find new people. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So if this podcast doesn't work out, well, we can uh, just uh, distribute NSA around Delft. And the yeah, Hague. let's yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> In sports news, the Eredivisie season's wrapped up last weekend, and while Ajax uh, celebrated the third title in four years, uh, the real drama was at the bottom of the table. Willem II were relegated, despite beating Utrecht 3-0 at home, that's because the only two teams they could overtake also won. Fortuna Sittard won 1-0 at NEC, while Sparta won the relegation dogfight of the day, uh, 3-1 against uh, Heracles Almelo to complete a remarkable end-of-season run of three wins and a draw in their last four matches. 
and that result pitched Heracles into the end-of-season playoffs and triggered the sacking of their manager, Frank Vormut. But fans of Vormut's post-match interviews conducted in his unique Dutch-German patois shouldn't despair, because he's taking over at Groningen next season. Hmm. Bolo, have you ever actually watched a Frank Vormut interview? It's one of the highlights for me of uh, covering Dutch football. You uh, mentioned it in, uh, in, our, uh, yeah. uh, in our editing meeting, yeah. <laughs> um, but I haven't, uh, haven't really looked it up, so no. no. Well, it'd be a tip to anyone. So his, uh, he was interviewed after the, uh, the, the defeat at the weekend uh, to, I think it was Herefain, uh, where they, 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 they lost to this. Oh, no, it was the Sparta game, in fact. They lost to a disputed penalty. Uh, well, one of the goals was a disputed penalty. And uh, he, 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 I think his um, rather shaky command of Dutch uh, really took a hammering. He, he just kind of throws odd German. If you can't think of the Dutch word, he just, he just throws the German word in because it's usually <laughs> intelligible. He's the Prince Bernhard of, of football. Yeah, he is very much the Prince Bernhard of football. He talks about, he talks about like, uh, yeah, de, de eerste helfte instead of de eerste helft. Ah, that's the sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, we can't blame him. I mean, uh, uh, probably if you hear a Dutch person speak uh, speak German or English, for that matter, they uh, they yeah. always blend in Dutch word as well. So yeah, yeah, we can't uh, we can't really blame him for that. Yeah, yeah, and he, I think he said he, he was denied a clear penalty. He just uh, he just kept saying "deutlich, deutlich," in, in hope that <laughs> "deutlich" would sound vaguely like "deutlich." So it's, there's a lot of that. It's, it's very entertaining. The good news is he will still be in the Eredivisie next season. But Heraklis probably won't because they lost the first leg of their playoff 3-0 to Excelsior. Um, and so they now need a miracle to avoid playing in the Kokenkampioen Divisie next season. In the other playoff uh, for the last Eredivisie place, Adderden Haag won the first leg, beating SA Eindhoven 2-1. And in the other playoffs for the Conference League, um, I always think it's remarkable that uh, the teams have to go to such lengths to um, take part in a meaningless competition. Uh, but anyway, Herefein and Utrecht won the first legs against AZ and Vitesse, respectively. Uh, and yeah, there was also some sad news for another Eredivisie player, right? Yeah, this is uh, Cambuur Leverden's reserve goalkeeper, Peter Boss. Um, he's had to give up, he's had to retire on medical grounds at the age of 25. Um, Peter Boss was found to be suffering from a heart condition, and doctors have told him there's no safe and responsible way for him to continue his footballing career. He's been at Cambuur for six years, so since he was 19, I guess, uh, made nine appearances for the first team this season. Uh, technical director Fuga Boy said it's terrible to receive this news as a professional sportsman at such a young age and obviously the club and the team will support him as much as we can. Um, that comes uh, in a season when Cambria have had quite a few serious uh, setbacks on the medical front. Uh, their trainer Henk de Jong is currently on sick leave, uh, second period of sick leave after receiving treatment for a cyst in his head. So hmm. yeah, puts kind yeah. of football in context I think when uh, you hear things like that. That a homing pigeon finds its way home isn't strange, but it usually doesn't take them 15 years. Mm. Achmin Dagblad reported on Thursday that Leo, whose ironic surname is Snell, was on his way to a pigeon race in Compiègne in northern France when he spotted a strange black pigeon among his coop. Snell initially thought it must have been someone else's pigeon because he didn't have one, but after checking its ring and running the number through the National Homing Pigeon Register, which apparently we have, it turned out to be uh, linked to him after all. He told the AD that he can't remember how he lost the bird that uh, gave the date 2007, but he suspects that it may have followed other pigeons in search of food and was kept in captivity. I'm I'm just glad that Mark Ritter wasn't put in charge of the National Homing Pigeon Register, or otherwise it would have just been erased every day. (laughs) 
<laughs> all the pigeons are raised, yeah. All the pigeons that arrived. Once there are more than 20 pigeons on the register, you've just started yeah. to, to taking yeah. names out at random. Um, a spokesman of the Homing Pigeon Owners Group, Nederlandse Postduivenhoudersorganisatie, which I have to clarify, there are a lot of subdivisions of this organization. There's a Northeastern Nederlandse Postduivenhoudersorganisatie. There's also a Southwestern Nederlandse Postduivenhoudersorganisatie and everything in between. Hmm. Um, yeah, we, we love our organizations here in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, they told the newspaper that uh, it's not impossible for a bird to find its way home after one and a half decade, but it's certainly very rare. Snell, who has been keeping pigeons since the age of 12, said he's currently in the process of retiring his old hobby. He and his wife are planning to travel. Now he's retiring from his work and he has also admitted uh, that he's actually allergic to pigeons anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it seems very strange. That's unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it turns out that pigeons have better memories than uh, the Prime Minister's Nokia. Yeah, he, he probably got home because uh, he navigated using the, the, the Tom Tom app on Mark Rutter's phone, which hadn't been updated for 15 years. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and he, 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 did, he didn't know of the existence of the Ketel Tunnel, but yeah, it was yeah. closed anyway, so yeah, it couldn't use it. Exactly, yeah. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us now on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. Well, not actually free, but you know, we will do it anyway. Yes. Uh, <laughs> My thanks to uh, Gordon Derek. We'll be back next week. No, we won't. No, because no, it's Hamelfart, which is when uh, Jesus Hamelfart. gets real time archived. <laughs> <laughs>
boat off. They definitely think, don't. Right? No, no. Yeah. That's how you know it's a serious torture. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 